Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. College uh, on um, the Reformation, uh, this being the 500th anniversary of the, uh, what many people see as the start of the Reformation, Luther's uh, protest against indulgences on the October the 31st, 1517, so here we are nearly 500 years later, and uh, we've been having a day uh, pondering the significance of uh, that protest and all that came from it, um, uh, hearing from all kinds of different speakers, fascinating from sort of Anglican, Roman Catholic perspectives. And uh, for this bit of the day and the, the discussion, I'm um, uh, joined by uh, Charlotte Methuen, who's Professor of um, Church History at uh, Glasgow University. Nice to have you with us, Charlotte. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. We also have Michael Layden, famous Michael Layden of uh, St. Melitus College, Northwest. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have um, Simeon Zahl, and uh, it's great to have Simeon, a uh, good friend, with us. Simeon is um, from the University of Nottingham and um, has taught on the Reformation both in the University of Oxford and uh, uh, in, in Nottingham as well. So that's our little panel for today. And um, uh, we just want to think back over the day, think of some of the themes that we've spoken about, what struck us about it, and I suppose particularly focusing around the question of what, what does the Reformation mean for the, the church uh, today? Because I guess uh, in a time like this, when you, you look back on 500 years of the Reformation, you can see it historically, it's very interesting to think of it, and its impact upon the past, now, its significance in its own time in the 16th century and beyond. Um, but I guess what the, the question we're particularly interested in is, what does the Reformation say to the kind of modern church? Are there insights within the Reformation movement that we actually think are quite important for the, the modern church to recognize uh, and identify and reclaim in some way. Uh, I guess part of that discussion is also how the Reformation shaped um, the, the modern church and society as well. So um, that's our question I want to start off with. I don't know whether anybody wants to pitch in with a suggestion on, on a Reformation insight or some aspect of this movement that we need to reclaim and find today. Charlotte, do you want to start off? Um, I've been doing a lot of talking about the Reformation this year, so I've been asking myself this question as well. And I think... And I think it's important to look at the Reformation as um, a place in which a lot, of his, a lot of the questions emerge that we're still grappling with as churches today, and indeed partly as well also as societies today. So for me, there's something really important about actually drawing out some of the Reformation theological differences, practices, and people going, oh, okay, that's why we do this. And actually recognising that there's a long history to some of these things, I think, can take some of the pressure off some of the discussions that we have today. There's something about knowing where you came from, mm. helping not just to accept where 
I am myself today, but also recognising that actually other people may have reasons for being where they are today as well, and that that can be helpful. So for me, there is actually a really important aspect about seeing the Reformation as a historical movement and making the, the, the connections of its debates to our debates. Just in a sense to add to that, but also maybe the flip side of it, one of the things I've noticed in nearly every conversation we've had today, whether it be plenary or in the streams, uh, is the way in which theology has been central and integral to what was happening at uh, the beginning of the 16th century. And perhaps contrasting that with the way we engage in some of our debates today in the church and, and some of the theological issues are or maybe not as prevalent and, and at the fore as they could have been. And the way in which those reformers are drawing on resources from the history of the church, they're engaging in fairly detailed and sometimes mind-numbingly detailed conversations about Greek words and how to interpret individual verses of scripture. But that's really, really important, and that's actually where the real revolutionary work happens. So it's both historical, but actually deeply, deeply, deeply theological. And that was something quite important for Luther, was it? Because I think for Luther, the Reformation was primarily a theological movement. Yes, it had political, social, um, psychological aspects to it, but it was primarily a theological movement. I mean, you, you think of that, his great statement about, um, you know, while I, well, my friend Amsdorf and I drank our glasses of Wittenberg beer, the gospel ran its course. The word did it all. And um, that made a little bit of an exaggeration there. He was a little bit involved in some stuff because it went on too. But the conviction was this was a kind of, you know, setting free of the, of the gospel, a setting free of the word of God uh, to run its course. And it, it, it actually produced the changes. Now, you know, it's, it's not something which, you know, it is a bit of an exaggeration. But for, you know, for Luther, it was, a, it was a theological movement, wasn't it? I think it absolutely was. And I've spent a lot of time recently with uh, Luther's commentaries in the 1510s when he's really wrestling with these fundamental issues and what's going on there is this deep connection between his exegesis of, of Paul and the Psalms but also his uh, his deep personal experiences and his own kind of despair about his spiritual life um, and then all that in conversation with Augustine and his monastic context and the part of his sort of genius is this synthesizing of these things into something new that did seem to speak to a lot of people at the time. I think that, I mean, I, I don't want at all as a theologian to say that the theology isn't important. I think the theology is deeply important. And I've, I also think that you're quite right that the theology is driving what Luther's doing. But I have a real problem as a historian about the idea that actually the Reformation could have happened without really significant political support. And this is just as true in Germany as it is in, the, in Britain. Um, there is no place where the Reformation is introduced where there is no political support for it. And indeed there are places where the Reformation is introduced with political support, the political, the political opinion changes and it's de-introduced again. So I think it's, it's, we need to be very careful, I think, about detaching the the, the, the liberation and the inspiration that the gospel gave to people from their, their, the structures of authority and of power within which they found, the they found themselves. The Reformation could not have succeeded. If it did succeed, there's a big question about that, but it couldn't have spread in the way that it did if there hadn't been places where it was politically and, and economically also advantageous for it to spread to. And you sense that Luther kind of knew that even though he wanted to say, you know, that the word did it all. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, you get to the peasants' revolts and his, his very strong reaction to that, and you think part, part of that is motivated by realising actually if he backs the peasants' revolt, actually he's going to lose any political support from the princes and the Reformation movement's going to run into the sand. So he was a, he was a canny politician as well as yeah. a as a theologian, which you maybe have to be a little bit if you're involved in and this he, kind of and, thing. And in his, do, in his treatise on, um, on secular authority, temporal authority to the extent it should be obeyed, one mm. of the things he says at the beginning is, this is really frustrating. People keep hearing the gospel being preached and they're not paying any attention to it. Mm. And that was Calvin. I mean, we haven't talked about Calvin much today. We've been talking much more about Luther, but Calvin's deep concern about, and the reason why he developed the doctrine of, of of, of um, predestination in the way that he did is his concern that people are hearing the gospel and not actually accepting it. Why mm. not? Mm. Yeah. So I think, yes, there's a really strong sense that they know that the gospel can be preached and not heard. Mm. Mm. And I think this raises a really interesting, this discussion raises a really interesting question about you know, why, why we're talking about the Reformation. What are we trying to do? And there, there, there are a lot of really worthwhile things to do. One of them is to try to explain where we've gotten to. Uh, and the Reformation's role in modernity and the way that it's shaped our, our life in all these ways. And to do that, we absolutely have to understand um, all the historical dimensions and not just the, the, the big ideas. But um, on the other hand, there's kind of a theological question of to what degree can we reappropriate or do we need to repair these ideas from the past for a new context? John Barclay recently referred to Luther uh, in a book as a brilliant recontextualizer of Paul. And there's a sense in which uh, part of the task of the theologian mm -hmm. is to re maybe recontextualize Luther or Calvin for our 21st century context. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is interesting in, in the, the light of the whole kind of question of the interpretation of St. Paul, because obviously the, the new perspective is a sort of a rejection of the Lutheran um, view of Paul and the, you know, the new perspective is being a, a new interpretation of Paul. I, I, I rather see it as, a, you know, I think that's right, Luther is a particular interpreter of Paul in the 16th century addressing particular issues. Uh, taking St. Pauline theology and addressing a number of key issues in the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, uh, in that particular context. And, so, and if you like, the new perspective is doing something similar. So it's not like um, the new perspective has finally understood what St. Paul is about, uh, and the Luther didn't, and Luther was mistaken. I tend to see them as, as they are both interpretations of St. Paul in particular contexts. And so you, you don't have to kind of choose between them, as it were. Michael? And I think actually one of the things that's most compelling about what's happening with Luther and, and, and the, the second generation reformers as well is that they're not just asking what did Paul think, they're also looking at their, their own proclamation, their mm -hmm. own account of the gospel and they're saying is this faithful? Yep. Um, they're sort of engaging in a kind of self-scrutiny, mm -hmm. um, not always in the friendliest of terms let's face it, but, mm -hmm. but certainly a self-scrutiny because there's a desire to be faithful in that context to the universal truth of, of God in Christ. Yeah. And I think that's, um, it, it sort of has echoes for me, at least the 20th century theologian Karl Barth, who says that's actually the task of theology in every generation. The reason theology is the church is disciplined before it's anybody else's discipline mm -hmm. is it's because it's that scientific self-scrutiny. It's mm -hmm. about testing the faithfulness of our, our word and our practice mm -hmm. in the light of the gospel. Yeah. I, 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 we can't ever stop doing that. And, this, and I think also... For Luther, it's important this theology was something that could be preached. It wasn't abstract theology done in a kind of university context where it was sort of divorced from life. This, this either had to be, could be preached or it, or it wasn't really good theology. So, you know, he has these tests of theology. Does theology hold you in the moments of real darkness and despair? You know, does it give you a God you can love? 
um, some of the great tests of theology. And it's all about, you know, a theology that can be, can be, can be preached, that actually speaks to Christian life, which is um, the kind of theology he was trying to do. Yeah, and, and, and is it a theology that speaks into times of darkness and despair, but is it a theology which gives people a sense of security in the things that can make them secure? Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, we're, what we're marking this year is the 95 Theses, as you said, mm -hmm. which are all about saying, don't put your faith in things that actually can't mm -hmm. give you a relationship to God. Mm -hmm. Um, or and that for won't Luther, hold you in those moments. Exactly, and for they're, Luther, they're that was indulgences. Yeah, sure. I mean, I yeah. think a lot this. I've, a mm. lot of my questions this year has been, what does it mean? To, well, not just this year, but for a long time, has been, what does it mean to preach justification by faith mm. in in our own context? And what are the things that we need to be saying to people? Don't mm. trust in these, mm. or don't. And and actually, the, the whole gospel of success, the idea that. Mm. Somehow we're in we're in control of our own destiny. It seems to me that's something that we need to be saying as churches over and over again. That you can work as hard as you like and and earn as much money as you like, but that is not necessarily going to bring you happiness, security, health. Um, and where are you then going to find your deeper values? And for me, that's one of one of the reasons to engage with Luther's theology because I think he's got some really interesting answers to some of those questions as well. Completely uh, agree with that. That there are as part of this process, the, the process of recontextualizing Luther is. Uh, I mean, there are these powerful categories that he, he's given us um, for thinking about judgment, about performance, uh, about worth, um, and those are still. Although there are aspects that have changed, uh, there are many of those psychologically, a lot of those things that we really struggle with and, and deal with. That people no longer often have a Christian vocabulary for thinking about those things at all. And Luther can provide a way of thinking about the fact that you're. Why are you so anxious that your boss doesn't like you or something? And, and that that's actually a sense of your self-worth. And maybe, if maybe maybe worth can be in God in a way that actually yeah. tracks these very precise pastoral kind of experiences, yeah. and yet leads you into the theological realm. And one of the things you were saying earlier on, Simeon, which I found very helpful, was you know we sometimes say, "Well, the Reformation doesn't really speak today because we're asking very different questions." You know, no one today is fearful of the judgment of God. Um, but we do still fear judgment. We don't fear the judgment of God. We do fear the judgment of our peers. We do wonder what everybody else thinks about us. We spend all our time thinking about that. And uh, you know, almost all of social media is precisely that. It's, you know, how do we present an image on Facebook or Twitter of somehow being a sort of successful, likable person so that people will somehow like us. We will somehow pass the judgment that our peers pass upon us. And so it seems to me they, they, they are absolutely right at the heart of those those questions. And, and, and I suppose, going back to our question of what does the Reformation offer, I think one of the, the, the things that I've pondered this year, thinking about the Reformation, is, is, is Luther's insight that our, that, that sense of security and worth that we've been talking about is, is found not inside you, but outside you. You know, it's not an internal righteousness, to use his own language. It's not something that we generate from within by our own piety or prayer or contrition or or holiness, or, or whatever, in 16th century terms, or by our own looks, ability, success, achievements in 21st century terms. But actually, it's found in, in the divine word that says to us, you are loved in Christ, you are given grace in Christ. It is in Christ that we find our righteousness, our, our identity, our security, our, our worth. And that seems to be quite good news, that you find your worth outside yourself, not inside yourself, because there's a lot of anxiety and... and um, uh, you know, personal 
angst or ridden, you know, tied up in that desire to find, you know, to feel good about myself and project, project that to other people. Just what's fascinating about that is, just come back to it for a minute, that, that's not just for the church either. That's not yeah. just good news to sure. Christians. That's for everybody. And you get a glimpse of that when he writes sort of these treatises to um, German lords and dukes. And he says, listen, let, let me tell you what your job is. And he's not doing it in this sort of patronizing, overwearing way. But he's saying, I, I can help you out here. I can tell you because of who Jesus Christ is. I can tell you what your role, yeah. your authority, yeah. your meaning, your purpose, your direction as a, as a, as a lord yeah. is and there's just something of the way in which he, he he sees the the gift of theological reflection the gift of the church's faith is not just as it were for the church's own yeah. good but for the good of the culture the society in which he lives and he's bold enough to articulate that in a way that will enable people that aren't theologians that aren't church leaders to, to understand and precisely because of what charlotte was saying earlier the, the political is so important that he actually has to do that he has to say to them listen here's what this theological revolution has to offer you and it's really important provided of course you're neither a peasant nor a jew <laughs> um, i mean I do, I do, we do need to be a bit careful here that we don't turn luther into some kind of saint um because he clearly wasn't um, and, I mean, and I think, I mean, I think we, I, while I, I think it's really important that we do what we're doing, which is to celebrate what, what he has to offer and what he still has to offer, but I think it would ring very hollow if we didn't admit that there were some very problematic aspects yep. to what he said, mm. um, and that particularly in his later years he became conservative and angry, like I suspect a lot of us people do in their later years, I think I'm starting to realise. Um, but that you, that you, that you, and you can see Luther getting angry about the fact that the gospel he's preached is being not heard in the way that he had hoped, and he gets angry about the Jews, he gets angry about the peasants. It's not that keen on women usurping authority that he doesn't think they should have either. So there were some, there were some really problematic aspects to Luther's legacy as well. Um, and I think in lots of ways we're, with, it's interesting having been this year a lot with Lutherans, um, because I realize that having a church that isn't quite as rooted in one figure is quite useful. We don't have to get over the problematic inheritance of Luther in the, in the Anglican context yeah. in quite the same way that Lutherans have to. The Church of England, we're quite happy about being rude about Henry VIII, aren't we? Yeah. We don't mind about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, I mean, just to follow up um, one of those strands of thought. I mean, the theme is politics. We've touched on that already in our discussion. I mean, Michael, I just want to ask you one of two things about this, because you were talking in one of your um, sessions earlier on about what the Reformation might have to say to politics today? I mean, are there particular insights you'd want to offer in that? What does the Reformation say to political life and the state and government? And so yeah, well, I'm particularly interested in what it has to say to the church's engagement, participation in, in okay. the political life of the state, I think. And, and just um, uh, not what Charlotte just said, notwithstanding, just reflecting on that Luther's commitment to the lordship of Christ is actually quite significant politically. We, I mean, we, we often don't think about it, but it's, it's, it is a political claim. Jesus Christ is Lord. And um, he, he, perhaps, if you follow somebody like Karl Barth, not, he doesn't say enough, Luther doesn't say enough, but he, he begins to edge in the direction of helping us to think that Jesus Christ lays claim to our secular state. Uh, the Lordship of Christ isn't just something for the church. And, and it's actually because Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, that the church is almost compelled to participate, that there is no um, 
neutral state for the church. We have to engage and, and, and participate in the political life of the states in which we find ourselves because Jesus says, that's mine. It's, it's, there is nowhere in the world that, that isn't his, that hasn't got his stamp on it somewhere or other, and therefore for which he died and was raised, raised on the third day. Um, and I, I think that's actually quite important, particularly in contexts where you have the absolute separation of church and state, or in contexts like ours where we're not quite sure in the Church of England what it means to be established, because it doesn't mean today what it meant 100 years ago, it certainly doesn't mean what it meant 500 years ago, and for some of our political... 500 years ago it wasn't no, quite, yes thank you we <laughs> hadn't got day historian here yeah. yeah. not a historian by training um, well you are right, you're right but, but, but it, it doesn't mean now 2017 what it did and, and there are political leaders who are also asking the same question why, why do we have these funny Anglican bishops in the House of Lords mm. what, what is it you have to contribute um, and there's, there's a at least an invitation I think for us to reimagine that and to think carefully about our, our role in public life, uh, but not not to think of it as it were from the from the the, the state's side of that divide, but to think yeah. from from the the imperative of the gospel. And, I, and picking up on that, I think one of the things that would be has been emerging for me more and more strongly as I've engaged with the Reformation in a sort of public way over the last year is just how much of the Reformation is about the common weal. About, and, and again, notwithstanding what Luther says about the peasants and so on, but he is deeply concerned that society should be a place in which people, as they go about their daily lives, can do that in ways which mean that they are fed and they are clothed and that they have places to live. And, and uh, actually, justification by faith for Luther is not just about my personal experience of justification it is about that, but it's also about how that flows out into actions of love of neighbour. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that actually is a message that the church over the last 20 years has been in real danger of losing. Um, I, I'm thinking back, I th I've thought back a lot over the last year or so to the Church of England's Faith in the City report, which came out in the 1980s, and which was a really strong um, statement about justice and about social justice and about social responsibility and the church's role in that as well as the state's role in that and how few dioceses in the church of england these days push social responsibility in the same way that they were in the 80s and what's that about and that seems to me a profoundly counter counter reformation not in the sense of catholic but profound misreading of the Reformation, if we read it entirely as about personal sense and security about salvation, we've misunderstood what the gospel is about. Because there is, a, I guess, a reading of the Reformation that it was basically a, a redistribution of energy rather than all the energy and resources going into religious activities such as indulgences and pilgrimages and masses for the dead and brotherhoods and everything else. Uh, all those were of no use for salvation, therefore all that energy and money and resources could now be given to aiding the poor. Exactly. And so actually the resources of, of um, monasteries that had disbanded now should be put into the common chest so they could be redistrib redistributed to the poor in the neighbourhood. Indeed, which is what happened in most parts of Germany. It didn't happen in England, because yeah, yeah. Henry VIII um, took in those resources and redistributed them to his rich friends. Exactly. Yeah. But, but and I've just just been examining a, a really interesting PhD thesis looking at the centrality of almsgiving to the to the service of Holy Communion mm. 
in, in the Book of Common Prayer. And when you see that, you suddenly realise, absolutely, it is, mm. it is part of the point of gathering together for Holy Communion is that you are gathering money which will then be distributed to the poor in the community. Mm. Mm. So, a question for you. Um, you've studied Luther quite a bit over the years, and um, what, would, what would you say is Luther's most radical insight? What's the thing that you think he is you know, most sharply kind of, oof, gosh, that's quite a powerful thing. So I was... Uh, it's funny, Grandma, I was just talking about something like that earlier today. Um, the theology of passivity that uh, Luther developed, so he, he came to believe very strongly that what needs to be preached to, to Christians, um, uh, at least to a significant degree, is that they can contribute absolutely nothing to their salvation, that even the tiniest bit uh, they can't contribute. And so... Um, and this is something I think that we're uncomfortable with today. I'm just as a theologian, all my friends are, are talking about participation and talking about uh, how divine and human agency can go together and finding theological ways to affirm human agency. Um, and so Luther's quite countercultural, I think, uh, in that particular respect. I mean, to, to really say that what you need to do is to learn to give up uh, and let God do it. Um, but that's fundamental to how he thought about justification by faith and how it developed. He thought that there's our resources, there's nothing in us uh, that can be cultivated in a way that can bring us into any kind of good standing with God. Uh, and so we need to have God's, God's grace has to come over and against us uh, yeah. in a way in which we're passive. Which is a very countercultural idea and one that we do struggle with quite a bit. And why do you think he went in that direction? Why was that such an important thing for, for him? I think for him personally, he came to, he was reflecting on his own experiences and his own experiences of, of sinful desire. He was thinking about Romans 7 a great deal in 15, 15 and 16. It comes up all the time. And he was relating to what Paul, uh, he thought was talking about Paul, talking about the Christian, uh, as having these desires that, that can't be over, these sinful desires that compete with the desire for the good and can't be overcome. Um, and he felt that he, God required this purity of heart uh, of the Christian um, that just he would despair about. As soon as you start looking at your emotional life, you, you have, don't have a lot of power over it. Um, and so it was in that, the context of his lack of power yeah. over his deepest desires that he felt that uh, he, he came to see the gospel as, as a response. You can't choose what you love. You can't choose what you love, exactly. And it's actually someone that, that it's so deep within it, you, don't, you can't actually influence that with your own will. And therefore, something quite profound has to happen, even deeper than your own will, to change that. Yes, emotions are not why. things you can just say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to grieve now, I'm done with that. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to be afraid of death anymore. Exactly. It's not a conscious right, yeah. decision. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and as we, as we draw this to a close, I'd love to ask um, um, Charlotte and um, Michael as, as well, in terms of your. Uh, anything else you'd want to say about, you, about the value of, of the Reformation for the modern church and the modern world? Is there any, any other particular things you'd want to uh, focus on uh, as we sort of just think back on the Reformation and its significance for the future of the church? Well, I suppose the th one of the things we haven't talked about in this, uh, in this discussion is the way that the Reformation fragmented mm. Um, the churches in Western Europe and that that fragmentation was then spread via the missionary movement to the rest of the world really um, and and that whole discussion about what does it mean to discover the unity of the gospel in a fragmented church what does it mean to seek unity in churches which are, are 
um, organizationally separate institutions, um, and how we, how we as Christians in, that, in this divided Christianity, in a society where actually increasingly Christians are more, we're not yet a minority, but perhaps, well, but, but, and, but as a religion, not yet a minority, but moving that direction, how we actually stand together and, and rediscover our consciousness as people of the gospel, as people of Christ. I think that's one of the huge challenges to the Refor that the Reformation leaves us with. And that is at the moment in society really important that we understand what it means to be Christian in this society. I think I'd want to say something about the contingency of theological speech, theological language, the way in which we talk about God, and um, the, the need that we have to uh, be faithful in that, to re-examine that, but then just attending to those, um, we were talking earlier today about um, Luther and uh, Zwingli and their disagreement over the Eucharist and what's actually happening. And um, at one level, it's a disagreement, and it looks petty, and it looks in insignificant, maybe. But at another, there's a real desire to say something true, to say something right and good about God. Um, and I think in that, um, at one level, what, what you can see is a sort of fragmentation, and another is a sort of a reminder that what we say is only ever partial. Uh, and so there's something there about both... Um, the limits of our capacity, the limits of our ability. God will always be God, uh, a technical term that I teach uh, the systematic theologians in, 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 in St. Melitus uh, every year. You can, you can write this down if you've got a pen. It's um, <laughs> God is really, 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 really uh, big. That's spelled B-I-G. <laughs> because the moment we feel that we've got some sense of, we, we've captured all that there is to say, we're, we're in trouble. And I think there's, there's a... There's a generous reminder in, in retelling the story and revisiting the, the, the story of the Reformation in the 16th century mm. that, that uh, our speech won't ever do the job entirely and we do need to revisit. And, and we're reliant on something. We're reliant on the witness of Scripture. We're reliant on God's telling of his own story. Mm. Mm. Uh, God goes first and then we have a go, at, as it were, of repeating. Um, and that, that's quite important in the, in the context of a divided church. Because it, it just chastens us from thinking we've, we've got it and they haven't. Yeah. Those other Christians over there couldn't possibly. Yeah. I, and I, I think it gives us permission to talk to one another on, on, on friendly terms. Um, re remembering that we're all recipients of the grace of God in the end. And that teaches you a kind of theological patience, doesn't it? That, that yeah. you don't have to, you know, I, you know, we have not spoken the last word on this. I mean, you know, the fact that in 1999 the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans actually came to a kind of common statement on justification is quite a remarkable thing. You know, this thing that was right at the heart of the Reformation, right, it basically split apart on the fact that with Lutherans and Roman Catholics, you know, without just glossing it over and genuinely saying, you know, you know we, Lutherans emphasize this and Catholics emphasize this, but this is something we can say together. Uh, and actually at the time, you know, there were things that happened... Similarly, you know, Melanchthon and Contarini gathered together in Regensburg in 1529 and come to a common agreement. Didn't quite stick, but you know, it sort of um, it was nearly there. It makes you realise that they, they were not as far apart as they as they seemed, and actually, that as Charlotte was saying, there is this sort of common core to Christian faith that we can rediscover with that theological patience. 
Well, I think patience here is an absolutely essential word, and one of the things that worries me quite a lot about the 16th century when I'm studying it, but also about current theological division, is the way in which we rush to make decisions, we rush to condemn each other. And I quite often, I would have hated to have lived in the 16th century. I think it would have been a deeply unsettling and frightening time to live because the whole of society... I think we, we underestimate the way in which society was being dislocated and disrupted by what was going on in the Reformation. And, and it's taken 450, 500 years for Lutherans and Roman Catholics to be able to say, actually, we recognise the good in each other again. Um, these kind of things take a long time and reminding us, the Reformation can help us, I think, to remember that theological division can take us to very unpleasant and difficult places, but it can also take us to places which can take a long time to recover ourselves from. Just wanting to add uh, to, to what both of you have said, but especially um, Michael's point about contingency and the humility of theology um, coming out of... Um, coming out of uh, the Reformation, I think we can also learn kind of positively, I think, from, there's something about the way that Luther was really trying to transmute his real life experience and his real religious struggles. He wasn't just engaging in tribal uh, issues. He wasn't trying to, to win battles. In the first instance, in the early period, he is really trying to find you know, uh, a graceful God um, in a way that I think theology is always going to have to be lensed. That's part of its provisionality, but also part of its creativity. Is the way in which it's lensed through our real, authentic uh, needs um, and desires today. Yeah. Well, that's it. Um, thank you very much, Charlotte, Michael, Simeon, for um, being part of this discussion. And um, uh, it's been really good today just to kind of ponder the Reformation and to uh, um, think about it. I'm sure we'll come back to this again on GodPod in the future, but um, thanks very much for being part of this discussion today. Be great to throw it open. We've got about another ten minutes for, for until we. Um, for, so we've got time for a few more questions from. Um, there's anything we've talked about now, or um, uh, anything that still remains. You might to ask about that one uh, before the day ends. So if you've got a question, do you want to stick your hand in the air, and then we'll pick up one or two from there. Go ahead. Um, Graham, I was interested in something you said earlier on about populism, uh, yeah. and, and its kind of relevance today, and sort of embracing the vernacular, embracing people where they are. I'm wondering whether there is a tension between that and the sort of unity, the efforts for unity and discovering unity. Because it seems to me that one of the things that the populism and the vernacular does is populism tends to be tribal. Mm -hmm. um, and how we navigate that and how yeah. much more wisdom there is yeah. Yeah. that we might have now that we didn't have 500 years ago. Yeah. Maybe we don't. I mean, you're right, there are different kinds of populism. There's a very kind of quite pernicious type of populism which goes for sort of easy slogans and labels the other as being difficult, and we've seen quite a lot of that in our recent times. I think the kind of populism that Luther was about was not a not a sort of um, sloganeering. Well, I mean, he was quite good at slogans, having said that, Luther. Yeah. I think he would have been, he would have been quite good at Twitter, you know, because he had his you know sola sola fide. You know, that's 140 characters. He was very very short. Um, so yeah, he had his slogans, but they were. There was a kind of hinterland behind the slogans. They weren't just, I think as Simeon was saying, they weren't tribal things. They'd come out of this deep wrestling of his own soul. But I think that the, the kind of populism that he had, and particularly when I think of the Bible translation, it is the, the, the desire to really work hard at expressing this in language which ordinary people speak. There was a deep desire in the Reformation to connect at that level, um, you know, to speak German, not Latin. 
Um, it was a preached movement before it was a written movement. Uh, the, the, the oral, the speaking word was almost the, the, the vehicle through which it spread, almost more than the written word, because, of course, most people couldn't read, um, but they could hear sermons. And so um, that's the kind of populism I think, is, I think Luther's after, not the sort of simplistic, tribal, um, you know, us against you, you know, Yarbu sort of type oppositional populism that we get in some of our political lives today, I think. I, I think as well, just and also to come back to Simeon's point about us not being able to do anything, which um, I agree is part of what Luther's saying, but there's some really interesting differences between what he says in his Latin treatises when he's having arguments with people like Erasmus, and yeah. that's what you've just said came from precisely that argument, and what he says in his catechisms. Um, and again, I think his catechetical works are really important because they were about how to empower pastors or pater familia um, to actually be able to speak to, their, to, to the people that they were working with. So there's also something here about taking things into the home, taking things into people's everyday lives, which is local. Um, and you're right, I mean, once things become local, then, you know, Lutheranism in Württemberg is going to look different from Lutheranism in the next door state of Baden, and that becomes quite complicated. But um, it, it's about building new local communities, and, and then how do we get those to talk to each other? So I, mean, I, think, it, I think it's a really good point and a really difficult point. Um, but I would want to also say that I don't believe that pre-Reformation Roman Catholicism was any less local, actually. Thank you. Any other final questions? One more over here. Just to pick up from something that Professor Hayes touched on. What would you say about the brutality of the Reformation? We haven't touched on that very much at all. Uh, if I was a priest under the reign of Henry, it would have been a time of immense confusion, personal fear, and genuine danger for me and my congregation who I cared for. We haven't touched on that much today. Would you like to reflect as a panel on the horrors of brutality? I think this is a, an aspect of the Reformation people really don't like talking about. Um, and I think it's, it's very easy and it's a real danger to see Luther as the first modern thinker, and which is, is less happening, happens less now, but used to be part of the, the rhetoric about Luther. Um, the Reformation is, as I said, a deeply brutal and unpleasant movement and I agree with you I, I as I said I wouldn't want to live in the 16th century in England if I had I wouldn't have, definitely wouldn't have wanted to, to live in England um, I think I think that brutality in the 17th century um, expresses itself in a whole series of wars so in Britain in the in the in the civil wars in Germany in the 30 years war both of which have fundamentally religious um, roots and um, I think it's also one of the place, ways that, in a reaction to that, people start to say, well, how can we start to find a truth that's not trying to be rooted in understandings of the gospel? And this is where you start to see the, risings, the rise of um, dependence on reason, dependence on rationality, on rational argument. And you can already see that in the 16th century, people saying, actually, we want to get beyond these theological differences and how are we going to find it? So. I mean, I, we could, I, I, there are all sorts of horror stories. I mean, if you want horror stories, go and look at John Fox's Book of Martyrs for the Brief and the, for the English context, but there's, there are similar stories to be told about much of Germany. 
um, it's, it was not a peaceful takeover. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it was the brutal age, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the paradoxes of Luther is on the one hand, you know, he always said his besetting sin was anger. That was his big problem. And it was also his big virtue. You know, he said, yeah, I write best when I'm angry because I get sharp. And, you know, you, and you can see that, you know, he always writes with this very vivid, colorful way. But his, his invective could be really cruel. And um, when he turned it against you, whether you were, you know, Jews or, or the, the radicals or whatever, it was pretty vicious. And, uh, and there's a strong argument to say without that anger of Luther, the Reformation might not have happened if he hadn't, you know, burnt the bull outside the, the, um, the Elster Gate of Wittenberg in 1521, really inflammatory gesture, would it have broken the way it did? I don't know. So anyway, that's one side of it. The, on the other side of it, you know, Luther was always very insistent, you cannot force people into faith. He was very against burning people um, for their religious views. Um, Calvin didn't quite take that view. Uh, but then again, you know, there's an argument that's in you know, the great Servetus case where, you know, Servetus, the kind of Trinitarian heretic, ended up being burnt in, in, in Geneva. Well, you know, he may well have been burnt somewhere else if he hadn't ended up there. Why, why he went to Geneva if you're a heretic and start preaching in Calvin's <laughs> hearing, I do not know. Uh, he must have been not very bright. But um, um, it, was a, it was a brutal age, and the Reformation is not exempt from that. So I think that's, that's part of what I'd say to him. GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.